0: My name is Lalita Ramakrishnan, and I'm a professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Cambridge. I work on tuberculosis, and I'm going to introduce you to this disease and share with you some vignettes about the curious pathogenic personality of its causative agent, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which we often also call the tubercle bacillus. Tuberculosis is mostly a disease of the lungs. And what do you think of when you, when you think of a TB patient? Do you think of someone who's thin, very thin, emaciated? And in fact, the disease has been called consumption over the ages. People also tend to have fevers, loss of appetite. They cough a lot. And often, as you can see here, they cough up blood. If you were to look at an X-ray of their chest, you would see that their lung is ravaged by TB as well. You can see a big cavity in there that is teeming with bacteria that they're coughing up in that sputum there. Now, while we often think of TB as a lung disease, in fact, TB can affect multiple organs. So, on that upper-left panel there, you see a lung that has been ravaged by TB. you can see here that many, many other organs, pretty much every organ in the body can be affected by TB. The only thing is that TB, as I have taught my medical students for decades now, is transmitted through the lungs. As you can see here, the bacteria spew out of an infected patient and land in the lungs of an unfortunate individual who happens to be next to this person. So, TB in any other organ is going to be a dead-end disease. Uh, and, and, and so, in, the ter- in terms of the pathogen survival, it doesn't do very much for the pathogen. Now, um, TB was discovered by these two physicians. Uh, Jean-Antoine Vel- Velmain was a French physician who first identified uh, TB to be an infectious disease, and then... Uh, Robert Koch really elaborated on this elegantly in 1882. So, before this, for many, many centuries, people had recognized... well, not centuries even, millennia. People had recognized that TB was a single disease entity. The ancient Greeks knew this, for example. But it's these two gentlemen who, who identified it as an infectious agent... And then Koch actually figured out that the disease was caused by this particular bacterium. Now, at the time, in the late 1800s, when these... Um, when, when and Koch were, were making these important discoveries, TB was a terrible problem in Europe. So, a seventh of Europe's population was dying of this disease, and a quarter of... Um, of the working adults of Europe were... were dying of TB. Now, imagine how that would be, to have a quarter of the workforce decimated by a single infectious disease. And, um, in fact, we all know that there are many, many famous people who died of TB, and I've uh, shown I'm showing you some of their pictures here. And you can see that these are all young European men. Well, one of them, the guy on the right there, Ramanujan, is obviously not a young European man. He was an Indian man. But it turns out that he, he was a mathematical genius who was recognized by a mathematician in Cambridge, a guy called G. H. Hardy. And Hardy invited Ramanujan to come to Cambridge and, and do some math with him. And that's when uh, Ramanujan uh, came down with TB and, as you can see, died some years later of it. Now, We think of of TB as a disease of the past, something that opera singers got, and poets and musicians of the past, and maybe something that our grandparents had, or if you're older like me, your parents. So, here... so we here in North America and Europe really don't think of TB as something uh, that's... that is... uh, is something to worry about anymore. And in fact, people will always... often ask me... Is TB... What, oh, you work on TB? Is TB back now? But actually, TB never went away. And, in fact, there's more TB now than there were, ever was before. And as you can see, it's concentrated in um, certain parts of the world, in Africa, as you can see, and pretty much all of Asia, in Europe, we have Russia that's affected by TB, and, and then so is South America. And, and this is very sad, and so it's, it's important to th- stop for a minute and think about why this might be the case. And in my view, there are two reasons for this. The first is socioeconomic. So, tiz- TB is a disease that disproportionately affects the poor. And um, this is because of, of the fact that it transmits best... In very in crowded conditions with poor ventilation. So, for example, your your urban shanty town would be a place where TB would spread a lot. Um, in terms of who gets TB, malnutrition is a major risk factor. Cigarette smoking is a risk factor. Environmental smoke, so you know, smoke from uh, from from cooking in these crowded, unventilated environments is a risk factor. And then there are more modern risk factors, such as diabetes and also um, HIV. And so about 35% of the... of the TB in the world today is amongst people who have HIV. From a medical standpoint, uh, there, are all, there are issues that have made TB difficult to eradicate. So, um, for one thing, we don't have an effective vaccine against TB. Uh, there was... there's a vaccine that was developed in 1921. I'll tell you a little more about it later, but it's basically not that effective. In terms of antibiotics, we've had antibiotics since 19... And since 1950. And, in fact, the anti... the four antibiotics that we use today were all developed between 1952 and 1962. But the problem is that to... to... to reliably cure TB you need to treat a person with three to four antibiotics for six months. Now, anyone anyone of you who's tried to take antibiotics even for a week will, will realize how hard that is. When you start to feel better, you stop taking antibiotics. Now, imagine if you had to do this in a place where you didn't have great access to health care and perhaps you had to trek a long way to get your antibiotics and it meant losing a day's work. So, it's, not, it's easy to see why people stop taking medicines when they start to feel better. And then, um, unfortunately, what happens then is that the, the, bacteria, the, the, infection, the disease relapses and they get contagious disease again. And perhaps it's because of this that we now not only have TB persisting in the world. But we also have drug-resistant TB. And you can see that that has affected many parts of the world. And drug-resistant TB comes in many flavors, depending on its extent. So, if uh, the bacterium is... is um, resistant to just the... um, the frontline drugs that I told you about, rifampicin and isoniazid, then it's called multi-drug-resistant TB, and then you have to treat the TB with other drugs that are not as good for sometimes as long as 18 months. But then you can get what is called extensively drug-resistant TB, or even totally drug-resistant TB, which is basically a death sentence. And um, so... so, not only has the problem not gone away, but the problem has been compounded by an alarming rise of resistant TB, and what... what is even more scary is that this mul- extensively drug-resistant TB is perfectly able to transmit from individual to individual. So, it's... it's a very good infectious agent. So, let's have a quick look at the life cycle, the so-called life cycle of TB. So, as I've alluded to, it's transmitted from person to person. So, a person coughs it up, it lands in the lung of the uh, unfortunate individual next to them, and then it gets into these cells that are called macrophages, and then tricks the macrophage into taking it in, and forms these big aggregates that we call tubercles. And then it has to break out of the tubercle to get out again and be contagious. So... Here is a fundamental difference between TB and some of the world's other great bacterial killers. TB is completely dependent on causing... producing active disease in the host in order to transmit. So, it's sort of an obligate pathogen, which... and I use that word in a slightly different sense than other people do at times. Whereas if you think about other great um, bacterial killers, such as... let's say... let's take the instance of plague. Plague is really not a hu- it's an accidental human disease. So, this... this... this infection that has decimated humanity over the years uh, is really an accident. And human infection has no relevance to the evolutionary survival of of the... of the plague bacillus. This is even true for things like the pneumonia bacterium, the pneumococcus, or the or the meningococcus that causes devastating meningitis, uh, or your life... uh, your strep-eating streptococcus. In all of these cases, these these bacteria are just mucosal colonizers. They live in our mucosal tracts. And disease is occasional and accidental, devastating as it is. Not so for TB. It needs to produce disease in order to... to transmit and survive evolutionarily. And... Perhaps this explains why there's, there's a certain... there's a curious feature that, that TB has, and that is it lacks what we call these classical virulence factors. It lacks capsules that... that uh, bacteria have to avoid being eaten by a macrophage, flagella that uh, bacteria use for motility, uh, pili, toxins... Um, Pili are used for adhesion. Toxins are used... Uh, well, they're basically cell po- they poison the host cell. And in, uh, this is all um, talked about very nicely, both by Stanley Falco and also by Ralph Isberg in, in prior eye biology talks. So, TB doesn't have any of these. So, how is it so successful? Well, there's... there's a, there's a few things, and I'm going to illustrate... I'm going to tell you about a couple of them. So, one thing it does have is this waxy coat that, as you can see, gives the colonies a characteristic appearance. And then if you were to stain the bacterium, and that's, that stain there is actually taken from a patient sputum, you'll see a, 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 it, that it stains in a characteristic way with a very specific stain, and we call it... Uh, we call them acid-fast bacilli, or some people call them red snappers. And this is because of that complex cell wall. So, let's have a quick look at that cell wall. So, if you look at this cartoon, that... there's a layer just above the cytoplasmic membrane that is the peptidoglycan that... that pretty much all bacteria share. But then you can see that above it, it's got a really complex lipid... uh, array of lipids. Some of these lipids are complex to sugars, others are complex to proteins, and... These... this... these lipids seem to contribute a lot to the ability of mycobacteria to evade the host and sort of... uh, and... 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 and be pathogens. And I'm going to illustrate this for you with a discovery that was made in my lab by uh, a Ph.D. student, C.J. Cambier. So, C.J. wanted to really look at that very early event of TB. So, after it gets into a host, how does it get into a macrophage and survive. And macrophages are primary immune defense cells. And their job is to come to bacteria and eat them and kill them. And here's a a video of a macrophage in culture eating bacteria. You'll... uh, you... this is a... um, I've... I've... uh, I've uh, basically taken this video from Manuel Amieva at Stanford, who also gave it to Stanley Falco. So, you'll see this video in Stanley Falco's iBiology lecture, as well. And you can see there's macrophages reaching out and eating uh, bacteria. And Stanley refers to this as macrophages eating peanuts from a bowl. And now, when bacteria get in... Uh, to macrophages, your garden-variety bacterium is killed. And Stanley also talked about this in his lecture. The way this happens is that the bacteria have on their surface those... you see those funny little protrusions? Those are called PAMPs, for pathogen-activated molecular patterns. And these PAMPs activate, in the host, a, a pathway a signaling pathway called the Toll-like receptor signaling pathway. And this pathway brings macrophages to the bacteria, and they'll eat them up, and then they can kill them using various microbicidal mechanisms. So, you can see how, if a mucosal pathogen is... is in... in the right place for the host, as in on the... on... on the outside of the mucosa, the host might let it be. But if it tried to get in... Or or, get, or or sort of started to wander, the host would send out these macrophages that would then kill it. Now, I've already told you that TB has to get in. It has to traverse this barrier to, to get in. It doesn't want to hang out with these pesky commensals. It wants to get away from them and deal solely with the host. And so... but TB has a... also has a ton of these PAMPs. So, how does it do this? And what CJ found was that that it uses some of these cell surface lipids to coat the pamps. So, the blue lipids here are something called PDIM. And PDIM coats these PAMPs. So, now it prevents TLR-mediated cell migration and uh, engulfment. But then it still needs to get in. So, how does it do that? Well, it adds on another lipid. And this lipid is a phenolic glycolipid. And this phenolic glycolipid brings in a new and different kind of macrophage that is not microbicidal. It... it can engulf the bacteria, but it's permissive to the growth of the... uh, of the bacteria. So, in other words, mycobacteria telling the host, thank you, don't worry about getting... about coming along with your macrophages. I'll bring in a different kind of macrophage from you that can help me get in and survive. So... So, here, just to reiterate, your bacteria on the left are your garden-variety bacteria that will get killed by uh, microbicidal macrophages that are recruited by the Toll-like receptor pathway. The mycobacteria don't use that pathway. They... they, they hide from it, from using these lipids. And then instead, they turn on a... a, a they, they activate the production of a chemokine, that recruits these permissive macrophages that, as you can see, take up the bacteria and then um, take them inside. Now, this is a very this 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 use of this, of these two lipids is a very nice evasion strategy. But if you think about it, there's a, there's a problem with this, and the problem is that we inhale TB and into our nas- into our nasopharynx, and our, na- the, our nasopharynx is full of bacteria that trigger TLR signaling. So, even if TB has a, the, my, even if mycobacterium has a way to evade toll like signaling, it's, there's going to be a lot of toll like signaling going on right there. And so, it would be basically caught in the crossfire in this battle between the host and the bacterium and... and... and essentially be collateral damage. So, the bug has evolved a trick for this. And that is that, unlike a lot of respiratory pathogens that are transmitted in the upper... through the upper uh, respiratory uh, mucosa... TB goes deep down inside, and that's again illustrated in this cartoon you've seen before. But watch those red droplets, right? They go deep down into the alveoli of the lung. So, TB is not a disease of the upper respiratory tract. It has to go deep down in small droplets that that contain maybe one, at the most, 10 bacteria. And this this has been known for quite some time, both through human epidemiological studies of how TB spreads, and also through animal models. And this is a very nice experiment that illustrates this. So, these uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins University in 1948 gave rabbits TB. And they they collaborated with some engineers. And what they did was to devise a way to give rabbits TB so that in large droplets that contained 10,000 bacteria. And these... these bacteria got stuck in the upper airway. They could... they would uh, follow them just by killing rabbits and transecting them and seeing where the bacteria landed. They also then took bacteria and put them in small droplets, so that one to three bacteria were given to the rabbits, and they showed that they... these droplets went to the bottom of the lung, to those alveoli that I talked about. And then they followed what happened happened to the rabbits. And you can see that the the rabbits that got more bacteria didn't get infected, whereas the rabbits that got fewer bacteria got infected. And so TB has known that more is not better. Less is better. And has devised an additional strategy. So, it has to use two lipids, and it has to... Uh, minimize its droplet size. And um, so I illustrate for you here how TB escapes from the lower air... from the other pa- commensals in the... Uh, from the commensal, sorry, in the upper airway and goes down to the lower airway where it's all by itself and can do this recruiting trick using its lipids. Now, this has... Uh, th- th- there's a couple of um, um, instructive points here. One is that TB is less infectious. Because of... because it has to use the small droplet strategy, it's actually not... not nearly as infectious as a common cold or measles or other things that have to transmit in the uh, upper airway. Conversely, we could think about it as the commensal flora being protective against TB, um, as we're finding more and more that they are against many infections, and TB doesn't seem to be an exception. But finally, um, TB has managed with this strategy and has been around um, since before the Neolithic demographic trans... Uh, transition. It's been around for something like uh, 70,000 years. So, the strategy is working very well for it. So, these two lipids that I just finished telling you about turn out to be very important determinants in the evolution of pathogenesis. So, pathogenic mycobacteria evolved from soil-dwelling mycobacteria, and the acquisition of these lipids was a major part of that step. But when we move on to now look at the next phase with... of... of the... of the life cycle of these bacteria, which is living within this macrophage they've recruited and going on to form the granuloma, um, there's a little bit of a surprise, because it turns out that the determinants that are used to survive in the macrophage, bona fide virulence determinants that are uh, studied quite a lot, turn out to be also present in the soil-dwelling bacteria. And it looks like they've just been repurposed from soil-dwelling bacteria to to, uh, confer virulence. And one such example is the bacterial efflux pump which... we don't know exactly what it does in the soil, but it's very possible that this... Uh, this pump was used or is used in the soil-dwelling microbacteria to pump out uh, antimicrobials or antibiotic-like molecules that other soil-dwelling organisms put out, because it's, it's... it's a warfare out there between these different organisms in the soil, and that's why a lot of antibiotics were discovered in soil-dwelling organisms, to protect themselves against other organisms. And this insight came from um, a graduate student in the lab, Kristen Adams. And what Kristen found was that these bacterial efflux pumps got induced in the pathogenic mycobacteria when they went into macrophages, transcriptionally induced, and they then protected the bacteria against the macrophage and allowed them to survive in the macrophage. So, they were macrophage-induced virulence factors. So, he- but here's the twist. When Kristen looked a little bit more at this, she found that they also mediate a phenomenon called bacterial tolerance. So, bacterial... uh, sorry, antibiotic tolerance. Antibiotic tolerance is a phenomenon where the bacterium doesn't become genetically resistant to an antibiotic, but nevertheless is... um, is... is phenotypically resistant to the antibiotic in the... is in the uh, absence of any genetic resistance. And it's often induced by particular environmental conditions. This phenomenon of tolerance has been known for a long time and has been thought to be the reason that TB takes so long to treat. But the model that has been proposed for this is that when bacteria enter the host and enter... and and become part of the host granuloma, the tubercle, they essentially become dormant. Uh, They undergo metabolic and a replicative uh, arrest, and as a result, they become resistant... uh, to... as resistant as intolerant to the antibiotics that typically tend to target um, bacterial determinants that are needed by actively growing bacteria, for example, your cell wall or your ribosome um, or your transcriptional machinery. And so, in this model, the slow... most slowly growing bacteria would be the ones that would be the most tolerant. a lot of uh, attempts to make new antibiotics to shorten TB treatment are predicated on this model. However, when... Um, when Kristen looked, she found that these same pumps that allow the bacteria to survive in the macrophage also mediate tolerance against frontline um, antibiotics used for TB. And, in fact, every antibiotic that she tested was... Um, uh, was... Um, the bacteria underwent tolerance to that antibiotic upon uh, entering a macrophage. So, this has a profound clinical implication, because now the most... in her model, or in her observations, the most rapidly growing bacteria are the ones that are most tolerant to the antibiotic, presumably because they're pumping it out. And there's a... there's a... um, there's a... there's a a clinical in here with this... with this finding, because there are efflux pump inhibitors available, bacterial efflux pump inhibitors. Many of these just happen to be drugs that are around for other purposes. And the one that we honed in on, or Kristen honed in on, was was a drug called verapamil, which is a calcium channel blocker that's used to treat high blood pressure and cardiac arrhythmias and migraines. And um, she found that if she treated the the macrophages that were infected with verapamil, along with the standard chemotherapy, they now did... they were killed much better with standard chemotherapy. And based on these results, uh, a clinical trial is... is going to start in India to see if verapamil would shorten the course of... of treatment. From an evolutionary standpoint, it's kind of interesting, because we're talking about a, a... a pump that was used, or... and is used, in soil-dwelling mycobacteria, presumably to pump out antibiotics, then over the course of most of the history of... Uh, a pathogenic mycobacteria, it was repurposed to... Uh, to fight macrophage defenses. And then, in the last 100 years or so, uh, since the advent of... or less, actually, 50 years or so, since the advent of chemotherapy, that ancestral function has come back to help the bacterium withstand uh, the, the... modern post-antibiotic era. Moving along, we've got the bacteria now living in a... in what is called a granuloma, or a tubercle, and the... while the initial cells that come and form this granuloma are macrophages, the body then brings in... the host... the immune system brings in many more different cells to. to to come in and help fight the bacteria, and yet, in many... in in a proportion of cases, the bacterium is still able to survive in this uh, rather complex structure. And this brings me to... to uh, a point that I want to make, which is that you'll hear many times people say, and you'll read in books, that a third of the world is infected with TB. And the idea there is that they're infected with TB... They've got it under control, and then it's... but at any given time, they can uh, reactivate this latent disease and... uh, and get transmissible and get morbid and transmissible TB. But actually, this is based on the... on the... uh, on the TB skin test, which simply tests to see if you've ever been infected with TB. And so, the fact that your skin test positive doesn't mean you have TB infection now. It means you once had TB infection. You could still have it, or you could have cleared it. And if you really go and look at old epidemiological studies, old and new, you'll find that most people who get infected with TB actually clear it using this arsenal of uh, immune defenses and, uh, and a combination thereof that I've listed for you here. And so, actually, most people eradicate TB, and a few people go on to have primary disease. And latency and reactivation disease are no doubt present, but in my view, based on my reading of the epidemiological studies, are a minority of... of cases. And this is very nicely shown here in a study done in Amsterdam, where contacts of active... TB sufferers were followed meticulously, and if they got TB at all, they got it within the first few months of exposure. So, the immune system does a pretty good job of killing TB. And if that's the case, then why don't we have a vaccine for TB? A vaccine for TB has been the holy grail. But, in fact, a vaccine for TB was made and was first administered in 1921. It was a live, attenuated vaccine. And... It's the... we still use it to this day in highly endemic areas, because it does offer a modicum of protection against disseminated TB and meningeal TB in kids, which, as you'll see in my third lecture, is a terrible disease. But obviously, we still have a lot of TB, though it's the world's most widely administered vaccine, and that means it doesn't protect very well at all. And efforts to improve its efficacy or to make whole new vaccines have not worked very well. So, why is that? Well, that's a paradox. We don't really understand why, but I'd like to tell you a few things. First of all, most people don't get TB when they're infected. They're protected, naturally. But if you do get TB, then very... then you're not completely protected against a second infection, which is different from the case of, say, smallpox, where if you get smallpox once, then you don't get it again. People can get TB again. On the other hand... There's very clear data that show that if you if your skin test positive, but don't... never manifest a disease, you're... you're somewhat protected. And that's nicely shown here in a study of nurses in Norway, who, in the pre-antibiotic era, were found to be either skin test positive and skin test negative, and then they were put amongst the TB patients to take you know, care of them, and the ones who were skin test negative were more... much more likely to get TB. So, these... the people who were skin test positive but had never manifested TB were somewhat protected against TB. And if we can understand this, look at these data again with new eyes and understand them a bit better, maybe we can try to think about ways to... uh, to... to recapitulate the protection that many people, in fact, seem to have. So, in closing, we've got a bacterium here that is possibly one of the world's most successful bacteria, that evolved from non-pathogenic environmental mycobacteria, doesn't really have a great many classical virulence factors, but seems to use a sort of stealth mechanism to survive. Uh, And even though it doesn't produce disease in most of the people that it infects, it's... that's good enough for it, because it produces just enough disease to... to have survived, uh, over the... over... over the eons. That is not to minimize the impact of TB. TB killed nearly eight... uh, two million people last year, or year... uh, in 2015, and caused disease that... that uh, debilitated them in about 10 million people. And perhaps the most chilling thing to consider is that TB's been with us for more than 70,000 years, and it's still with us. It predates the transition to an agrarian culture. It... um, it... it um, resisted urbanization. In fact, it thrived with urbanization. It's resisted uh, modern medical technologies like um, uh, antibiotics and uh, attempts to make a vaccine. And um, so it's a... it's a... it's a pretty... uh, it's a pretty tough and wily bacterium. And if you stay tuned for parts two and three, I'll tell you about some more insights we've had about this bacterium, using a very interesting and unusual model uh, to... 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 to, uh, to der- derive these insights. Okay. Thank you.